How gracious is our God to reveal himself to people like us. Not just so that we know he is, but so that we know him. So that we might know him personally. And of course, Psalm 19, which I invite you to turn to in your Bibles now. Psalm 19 is all to do with this, isn't it? It's all to do with the gracious revelation of God to all people in creation and to his own people in his word. Let's just look at this psalm once more together, beginning in verse 1. You ready? To the chief musician, a psalm of David. The heavens declare the glory of God. And the firmament shows his handiwork. Day unto day utters speech, and night unto night reveals knowledge. There is no speech nor language where their voice is not heard. Their line has gone out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. In them he has set a tabernacle for the sun, which is like a bridegroom coming out of his chamber, and rejoices like a strong man to run its race. Its rising is from one end of heaven and its circuit to the other end, and there is nothing hidden from its heat. The law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The statutes of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, yea, than much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and the honeycomb. Moreover, by them your servant is warned, and in keeping them there is great reward. Who can understand his errors? Cleanse me from secret faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless, and I shall be innocent of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, my strength and my Redeemer. I think it's absolutely wonderful that we are finishing our look at Psalm 19, on the day in which some parents stood in front of you all uh, with their precious children and pledged to point these kids to the greatness of our God and His grace in our Savior, Jesus Christ. Because Psalm 19, in a sense, gives a parent a, uh, a way to do that. I don't know if you've noticed that, but it begins, doesn't it, with natural revelation. And how many of you know that is the, the first thing a child is going to learn about God? God uh, wants to be known. Uh, he hides himself from no one. Remember that? That this is the great theme of Psalm 19. And God so desires to be known that he has revealed himself to all people all over the world throughout all of human history through his creation. And so David sings, the heavens declare the glory of God and the firmament shows his handiwork. And so moms and dads and and grandmas and grandpas point to God's handiwork in creation and say on the authority of scripture, God made that and God is great. In fact, he's immeasurable and God is good. Look what he has done for us. And God is here And he wants us to know him. So clear is God's revelation of himself in creation that all people are without excuse for rejecting God. Man's ignorance of God is is a willful ignorance in that sense. You've got to work to ignore God, to reject God. Because God hides himself from no one. And God wants to be known. Do you know God? 
And God reveals himself so clearly in creation, but, but it is not a complete revelation of God to us, is it? God reveals himself completely to his own people through his word. David says in verse 7, the law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. And, and so the question, if you were here last week, that we wrestled with is, is your soul converted? Has this revelation of God been made clear to you? Yahweh, the covenant God who calls a people to himself according to his grace alone and brings them into a relationship of reciprocal, loyal love. Is that you? When you think about your relationship with God? Because that's what it is to have a converted soul. By them, by the scriptures, your servant is warned, says verse 11. And in keeping them, there is great reward. And so our children learn not only the warnings of God in his word, but the great rewards of God, the promises of God in his word. As mom and dad and grandma and grandpa share the word of God that is dwelling within them richly with these little ones. So in his world, natural revelation, and in his word, special revelation, God makes clear his desire to be known personally. You know, I was reading the other day that C.S. Lewis once called Psalm 19 the greatest poem in the Psalter and one of the greatest lyrics in the world. Now, whether you agree with that or not, I think you'll agree that we really come to the crescendo of this great poem, uh, beginning with verse 12. Uh, the, the wonder of God's revelation in creation, <laughs> the wonder of God's revelation of himself to his people through his word, uh, is missed by all people apart from God's revelation of himself in conscience. I pray you listen to your conscience this morning. God reveals himself convincingly through the consciences of his people. The reason David finds himself warned and rewarded through the word of God is that he has been given a conscience, and so have you. You are unlike any other part of creation, made with the ability to have relationship with God. Not just to know that he is, but to know him. Not just to love what he has done or even love what he has said, but to love him. Does your conscience testify to you this morning that you love God? That you know him in this way, though you desire to love him more, for sure. Do you hear the voice of God in your soul. Here's the thing. Every person on this planet has a conscience. Did you know that? As you travel the world, go visit any culture, and, and with very few exceptions, everybody on planet Earth seems to agree we probably shouldn't kill each other. I don't want to have you take my stuff, and I shouldn't take your stuff. Younger people owe honor to older people. Turns out we didn't come up with that. That didn't evolve. God gave us these wonderful warnings and rewards in his law, written on our hearts. Lately, people all over the world have been saying with respect to what's happening in, in Ukraine, you know, that's unconscionable. What do we mean by that? Well, we simply mean it's immoral it's clearly wrong by any measure of human conscience, right? Everyone has a conscience, but, but listen, nobody's conscience works the way David's is working in Psalm 19 unless God acts upon that person by his grace. So our little ones, born with a conscience, need mom and dad to function as their conscience for a season, don't they? The conscience must be enlivened by the grace of God. 
And that is why David has used the name Yahweh for God, beginning in verse 7, the covenant God, the God who calls a people to himself by his grace and says, I am yours and you are mine. Remember a fellow named Saul of Tarsus, a religious man who thought he was actually doing God a favor as he persecuted the church. And I mention this because Saul's conscience was actually clear at that time. It's just that his conscience was clearly wrong. And it wasn't until God interrupted his life by grace until Saul met Jesus, if you will, on that Damascus road, that his conscience was activated so that he repented and and knew what true allegiance to God actually looked like. And something miraculous has happened to David's conscience as well, hasn't it? And we don't see it happening here. In fact, we don't see it happening in any of God's people. It's kind of like the wind that way, isn't it? You read that somewhere. But we see the results of it, don't we? The result of this miraculous work is seen in all of God's elect people. David's conscience has been brought to life by the grace of God. Look at verse 12. Who can understand his errors? You see, the natural man whose conscience is defective doesn't care about his errors. In fact, he is wise in his own eyes, the scripture says. He is still on that way that seems right to a man, but the end thereof is eternal condemnation, says the scripture. But David does care. In fact, it's the, it's the beginning of the crescendo of this psalm of, of God's self-disclosure. Why does he care? That, that's the question. David is a man who has come under the influence of divine revelation. Has that happened to you? I mean, do you live under the influence? You live under the influence of God's revelation of himself in his word? You see, it's not enough to just take it in. Right and true as that is. But to understand God, to, to, to believe, to, to know that God is not merely talking, but he's, he's talking to me. He's talking to you personally in his word. That's the issue. Whether you're influenced in such a way that you draw near to God. So that you see him in creation, not just his handiwork so that you delight in his word to you, not just his word in general, so that you understand and obey his word. Well, that that is to do with your conscience, isn't it? That's why I've been saying for the last three weeks, not just to you, but to my own heart. Is our conscience paying attention here? Are we living under the influence of God? A conscience enlivened by his grace? So that we understand his word is actually written to you, to me? How would you know? How does the conscience, enlivened by God, function in a way that's different from the consciences of those who are yet alienated from God? Because remember, everyone has a conscience. Why do some here today listen with hungry hearts, not to my words, but to the voice of God in Scripture? And sadly, perhaps some here today are once more just kind of clocking in. What, what, what's the difference? I trust you notice that the pronouns in this great song of praise... Uh, change beginning in these last three verses that we're focusing on this morning. Verses 1 through 6, in natural revelation, David sings or writes, if you will, in third person. 
In verses 7 through 11, David is singing of, of special revelation in Scripture, and, and it ends, you know, your servant is warned and rewarded, sings David. That's second person. But, but now in verse 12, it's personal, isn't it? Who can understand his errors? Cleanse me from secret faults. <laughs> Yes, it is true that God's servants, all of them, are are warned and rewarded by his word. But the issue for us this morning isn't so much that. It's, are you God's servant? Are you one who longs to be cleansed of sin? Even secret faults. Are you one who knows through God's self-disclosure to you and his word that you are so full of sin and rebellion that you cannot even fathom the depths of your depravity in light of God's holiness, which is immeasurable, in fact, infinite? Because that's what it is to live under the influence of God's grace has this kind of loyalty to God, dependence upon God, become personal to you. So much that you care about the sin that hides beneath the tip of the iceberg that is the sin known to you. Think about that. What are secret faults, do you suppose? That sounds ghastly, doesn't it? Secret faults? Do, do, do God's people have secret faults? What is that? Well, certainly that would include the sin that you're aware of that no one else sees. Think of the man who cleans up quite nicely on a Sunday morning. And he writes a check to that mission and he sends a, a kid to that camp. But, but hidden to others is an anger that lashes out at his wife and his children at home. doesn't happen at the church. It's a secret, and it's a terrible secret. And he may well feel shame if that were ever discovered, but it's the kind of shame that a dog feels when it dirties the carpet. In other words, it's not a godly sorrow that leads to repentance. He feels no shame before God now as it remains a secret in his own heart, in his own family. Do you see what grace is needed from God if such a cold and cruel conscience is to say with sincerity and humility, cleanse me of this secret fault? The night stars are seen by all who look at them. And David says in this song, the the sun's rays touch every grain of sand on the shore, don't they? And so the eyes of the Lord see every secret sin, and the wrath of God burns as the sun against all secret sin. And it takes a work of grace in a man like you or a woman like you to, to stop hiding this secret and run to God to be cleansed. Perhaps by secret faults, David means sins that are unknown even to himself. Do you think that's possible among God's people? That there could be sin in our lives that we're not even aware of? Maybe our spouse is, but... They've fallen behind in pointing it out or something. Grace has wrought in David the wisdom and humility before God to realize that he cannot be the measure of his own spiritual maturity. Are you hearing this? Do you realize you cannot measure your own spiritual progress? You don't have the right yardstick, and neither do I. When I was in grade school, I think I've told you this before, I started playing the the trombone because the teacher said I had fat lips. (laughs) 
and, and, and so did my friend Scott. And so the two of us were, were enlisted to, to play the trombone, which is a great blow to me because my, my career choice at that time was rock star. And um, so my odds were lowered tremendously in the sixth grade. But I remember, I remember so clearly um, being told to master a scale that we would play in front of all of our bandmates, and I mastered it. I mean, I, I, I could play it really fast and really clear, and I was so proud to be able to share that with my, my bandmates who, you know, heaven help them if they could only catch up to me, you know, and uh, you know where this is going. And so I, I played the scale when it was my turn, and it was so fast, and it was so clear. And, and the instructor, Mr. Dahl, he just kind of walked quietly over to my music stand, and he wrote on my music. And I'm waiting for the A+, plus or uh, the A++, plus plus, right? I mean, that was a rare thing at Sunrise Elementary, but it did happen. It could happen. And I figure I owed it. I, I always owned, owed that. And um, he wrote a C-plus on it. And then he just looked at me, looked at me and it's it pretty tenderly, but firmly, he said, you know, you, you played that so uh, clearly and so well, and you played every note in the wrong key. <laughs> and, and, and then he just moved right on. I mean, he didn't even waste time. He knew, he knew I would learn the lesson. And I did. I, I don't play the trombone anymore. <laughs> listen, listen. You care if this is practical for a minute? Some of you here today perhaps feel a bit smug because you measure yourself against others. And if only they could catch up to you spiritually. You're just waiting for others to have the handle on God's word that you imagine you have. And it'll take a work of grace in your life and probably some life experience like I just shared. For you to know that you're, you're, you're playing the wrong notes. You're missing the key of love toward others who are made in the image of God. And to love God is to love his people. Amen? Can you hear God? Speaking to you in his word today? Boy, I can. I know he's talking to me. You see, we all have this tendency to live the Christian life really well by our own measure. Have you noticed that? Yet we can be out of key and not even know it. Whether it is secret to others or... Even to us, sin is sin before God. And it takes a work of grace from God to us for us to be able to pray with sincerity, Lord, cleanse me from secret faults. I can't measure where I'm at before you. I don't trust that measure. I want you to notice in verse 13, because we're making very good progress here, aren't we? Notice in verse 13, David is not merely concerned with secret faults, with hidden sin. His conscience has made a, been made alive to God, and so he is now aware of a great battle raging within him against known sin, sin that dares to presume upon the grace of God. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins, says verse 13. Let them not have dominion over me. David knows that he needs grace from God even if he is to avoid sins that he's aware of and decides to commit anyway. What kind of Christian would willfully sin against God? Your kind. And my kind. I know I shouldn't say that to my neighbor, but I'm going to say it anyway. She's got it coming. (laughs) 
Yes, I, I know I gave my wife those flowers so I could later let her know about the weekend golf tournament that uh, she'll not be able to attend. It's kind of a guy thing, but, but I'm going to buy them anyway. It worked last time. She loves flowers. Of course it's wrong to look at those websites. But you know, I figured out how to hide that from everybody. And what's the harm if nobody else knows? You think God's people ever sin presumptuously against His grace? Wasn't it David, a man after God's own heart, who stayed home when he should have been leading his men, who stared at a woman not his wife when he ought to have looked away? You see, how often secret sin leads to presumptuous sin. And David stepped willfully into adultery and murder and then lied about it. He wasn't missing information from God about the wrongness of that. His conscience was working. David knew all about presumptuous sins, didn't he? And I wonder this morning, does your conscience testify that you need grace from God if you're to live free of even presumptuous sins. That, that, that you're on thin ice if you're that person who says, that would never happen to me. Your conscience, enlivened by the grace of God, must be constantly influenced by the word of God if you're to enjoy this grace. Before we press on to verse 14, which is really the, 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 the highlight of the, of the crown jewel of this psalm, I, I want to remind you of something that we noted last week and the week before, I think. Um, there, there's a progression here between these three sections that we're noting. In verse 6, uh, David is, is singing of the, the wonder of the sun, nothing escapes its heat. And then he immediately, in verse 7, begins to speak of or sing of the word of God, God's self-disclosure in Scripture. And, and, and we're meant to apply that to our lives. There's, there's nothing that the word of God doesn't, doesn't reach and warm and enlighten and apply to, in other words. And now we can take that same principle of progression as we move from verse 11 you know, God's self-disclosure in Scripture to verse 12, his, his self-disclosure in conscience. Just as your conscience needs to be enlivened by God in order for it to work rightly, your conscience is meant to be um, always informed by the Word of God on an ongoing basis. The conscience must be constantly led by the Word of God. As opposed to what? Anything else? Anything else? And this is why I suggested to some of you in the pastor gram um, last week that you look at Joshua 1.8. And you may have wondered, well, I wonder why he had us read that. Well, let's just look at it together, and then, then I'll explain. God says to Joshua, This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate in it day and night that you may observe to do according to all that is written in it for then you will make your you will make your way prosperous and then you will have good success now think about what david has said about the law of the lord it's perfect it's the all sufficient revelation of god to his people right and david knows as Joshua knew that the success of God's people depends upon what they do with the word of God. Do you realize that's true for you as well? That's true for me as well? Not just knowing the word, but what we do with the word that we know is what's related to our prospering by God's measure. Meaning what? being brighter reflections of his holiness in a dark world. Knowing that more and more of the stuff that looks like Jesus really is being chiseled and chipped off of us so that we're 
a clearer reflection of the blessed man, the perfect man of Psalm 1, the Lord Jesus. Your spiritual success in that sense as a person of God is conditioned upon what you do with the word of God. You're meant to be led by it, not not just to read it and study it. And so if, if you and I don't take time to feed on the word and think on the word constantly and and then act by God's grace as he allows on the word that we know will not have the the kind of success that God intends for his people to have as his men, as his women in this world. Here's one way to look at it. We have the least success spiritually when our thoughts of God are low and few. I'll give you a quick example. It is not an uncommon thing for a man or woman of God to come to another believer, another church member, um, in the best sense, with a, a need for help. Maybe it's help in a relationship. Maybe it's help with an addiction to, to, to one sin or another. And, and, and the, the, the fellow believer says, well, have, have you been in the Word? No. Have you been in the company of God's people? I don't think I've seen you for a while when we gather. No, haven't been. I've been busy. Well, if you haven't been in the Word, you're not meditating on the Word, then are you? No, not so much. But you're really thinking about this sin, aren't you? All the time. I hate it. Well, it's good that you hate it. But success in all of this relates directly to what you do with the word of God. So if you're, not, if you're not feeding on it, you can't do much with it, can you? And if you're not meditating on it, it'll not become a part of you. Your mind will always go where it need not go. And that is why, by the way, the enemy of souls... Are you still listening? That is why the enemy of souls militates against your times of meditation. You're interested in things you never even thought you cared about when you try to meditate on the Word of God. Have you noticed that? And this is why the enemy of souls militates against your times of prayer. Prayer is hard. Why? Because it's spiritual warfare. You have an enemy who is rude enough to bust into your prayer closet. But he who is in you is greater than he who is in this world. Amen? Amen. But it is a battle. It is a battle. He knows, Satan does, that God is virtually non-existent for that man or that woman who does not meditate on God's truth or never prays. And there is a great plague of what some have called practical atheism in the church today. Do you know what that is? It's a bunch of people professing belief in God yet living as if he doesn't exist. That's practical atheism. And it will creep into an assembly of God's people if we are not heeding David's warning and reward, which is an echo of God's warning and reward to Joshua, isn't it? Is your conscience regularly influenced by the word of God so it can be rightly led by the word of God? Do you realize that is the primary purpose of God's word in your life before you share it with anybody else? The thing of it is, is you can't meet God by going to a certain place. Not the way David's singing of. And you can't meet God by just looking at a certain thing. Like many who are apart from God do. They worship this, this and that and the other thing made by God, but not God himself. You must meet God in the privacy of your own soul, your conscience, if you're to meet with him at all. 
Let me tell you something you already know. Do you mind? I'm going to anyway. But, friends, what we choose to think about over and over again matters a lot. And those of us who are mostly soaking in Fox News and Newsmax, or if you want the other flavor, MMSNBC and all of that sort of thing, um, it ought not to surprise you when over time you become a cynical, fearful, insecure person. But you're one of the Jesus people, right? You become distorted by meditating on the wrong things. How many of us know this from personal experience? I know I do. And when we're distorted, our witness for the Lord is distorted. You think that might be happening in the church at large today? If all you think about is your preferred delights, (laughs) earthly pleasures, living for this trip and that recipe and those hobbies... You're just consumed by this pursuit of pleasure. Well, then you're going to be shaped by that as well. Discontented and distracted with day-to-day life. Why? Because it'll never live up to the make-believe life you're thinking about all the time. I'm sorry this isn't more practical. But, you know, the opposite is true as well. Do you mind being encouraged? The opposite is true as well. When my meditation is upon the Lord, when your meditation is upon his word, your thoughts are sweet and content and even courageous in light of what you face as God's servant. Let me give you a quick example. When Martin Luther was summoned before the emperor and others um, at the the Diet of Worms in, in 1521, he was asked to recant his teaching in, in, in a way that the apostles were, were told, hey, no, no, no more of this Jesus stuff. And, and what was it that, that Luther said when he courageously refused to keep quiet or to recant? He said this, my conscience is captive to the word of God. And so David in Psalm 19 is describing The conscience that has been made captive to the word of God, gladly, joyfully. What amazing prayer and praise this is. Let's look at 14 and we'll end with that eventually. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my strength and my redeemer. Notice the first person again. This is to do with my mouth, uh, because what comes out of my mouth reflects what's going on in my heart. So I cry out in dependence upon Yahweh, who who is my strength, my redeemer. It's all personal now. You see, the, the, the meditation uh, on God and his word that is most uh, um, um, beneficial to you is the meditation on truth that is personal to you. What truth in this book is personal to you? Every last bit of it. And yet, how quickly we always think of those people. Some of you are doing that right now. I hope he's hearing this. I hope. This is the one we've been waiting for, for that guy. Let's make it our aim, friends, to discover spiritual truth primarily so that we can immediately apply it personally to our own lives as God's grace allows. Can we do that? That's the sentiment of David's prayer, isn't it? We've been calling this series, this short little series in book one of the Psalms, Christ in the Psalms, or I have, and no one's, no one's disagreed yet. Um, because we've been discovering in all of these psalms so far, in fact, this is, this is really clear in book one, there are some songs that are just overtly messianic. We'll look at one of those next, um, Lord willing. And yet all of these psalms send us to the Lord Jesus, don't they? 
Because all of the word of God sends us to the Lord Jesus. This is, this is his story. And surely we see that in the ending of this great song of David, that is Psalm 19. He is the Lord, Yahweh, who relentlessly pours out his loyal love to his people so that David said, he is my strength. Some of your translations, in fact, if you're not using the King James, New King James, it says rock, doesn't it? Um, the, The Lord is my rock and my redeemer. And there's no need to quibble over which one's right. They're both right. You can see how a rock uh, symbolizes strength. Um, Think of what David did with a little rock, uh, with God's help to a fellow named Goliath, right? But a rock also imparts strength and help when it shields a person from the desert sun as it traces its way across the sky. And how many of you agree with me that David and his people knew all about the need to be sheltered by a rock? The the, the need to run to the safety of some fortress that God had created and placed in the middle of the desert of their world. And David knows how to run to the strength and shelter of Yahweh alone. The God of creation is his God. The God whose whose perfections are are made clear and and complete in his word is David's God. And so David must run to this God personally for strength and shelter. Let me ask you something. Have you run to God for shelter from his wrath? Toward your sin? Not sin in general, your sin. You mean my presumptuous sin? Well, that for sure. But what of the hidden sin? You say, well, nobody knows about that yet. God knows that. And He's just told you, and He's told me in His Word that there's sin so hidden you don't even know about it. The way our little children. Sometimes do something feeling just fine about it until mom or dad says, you probably shouldn't feel good about that. That's not right. Even one secret fault, one hidden sin, subjects you to God's wrath. God is holy. God is perfect. He only associates with perfect people. What a conundrum. And if you were to avoid his wrath eternally, listen, friend, you cannot run from him. There's no hope in that. But you must run to him because he loves you. And as a rock sheltered God's people in that desert, so God will be your rock, your shelter from the heat of his wrath for your sin. Do you believe this? He is a rock of shelter, our only redeemer, David says. What what a name is that, redeemer. Think of that. You know all about this word. A redeemer in the Hebrew sense was a person a person's close relative, a kinsman, if you will, who paid a price on behalf of that impoverished relative who who could not pay to release himself or herself from, from debt. And in the book of Ruth, you know the book of Ruth? Of course you do. You know it's all to do with this redemption, the, the work The gracious work of a kinsman redeemer, isn't it? Here is Ruth, impoverished, and by God's good providence, she meets this fellow Boaz, and and Boaz, purely for love's sake, serves as her kinsman redeemer, buying back what she cannot, and even marrying Ruth. It's quite a love story. And as it turns out, this whole book is a love story. No matter how you look at it, 
Boaz even provides Ruth with an heir, a son, so that Boaz and Ruth are part of the lineage flowing from King David to David's greater son, Jesus. So pay attention. We're going in a direction now, aren't we? Who is Jesus but the fullness of God's love for his people? Who is Jesus but the Redeemer in person? For love's sake, God the Son bought us out of our impoverished state, sinners that we are. All of our rebellion against our Creator and our smugness about it. And for love's sake, Jesus paid for our redemption with his own shed blood on that cross. Paid for our freedom from sin and our shelter from the wrath of God, didn't he? And he does so not merely to release his people. Do you realize he did it so to be married to us? You who are in Christ are married to him? The bride to her bridegroom? That's quite a love story, isn't it? And it's told in various ways throughout the scriptures. So here is David looking down the tunnel of human history, if you will. And he sees the forgiveness of his own sins, whether presumptuous or secret, coming through the Messiah, the promised king, the promised redeemer. And he sees all of that pictured in the bloody sacrifices that are spelled out to God's people in the Torah. And David sees this hope, his hope, anchored to the redemption that would come to all of God's people through the Lord's anointed, his Christ. And so here you are in Psalm 19, meeting Jesus. Do you know this Jesus? Has has your conscience been activated, renewed by God himself and his grace so that you see not only you for who you are, a sinner, but you see Christ for who he is, your redeemer? Friend, if you've never had that assurance, but the reality of it all comes to you in a wonderful way now, I beg you to repent and come to Christ. He'll be your shelter. He'll be your redeemer. You'll no longer be on the outside looking in. And if you're his, let's ask for grace to meditate on the work of our redeemer often. Infinite, matchless grace we just sang. You think about that on other days besides Sundays? Because you and I need that infinite, matchless grace to draw our next breath, let alone do anything of value by God's measure. The Puritan John Owen said this. He said, if I have observed anything by experience, it is this. A man may take the measure of his own growth or decay in grace according to his thoughts and meditations on the person of Christ and the glory of Christ's kingdom and his love. What, what an affirmation in such a practical way of what God had said to Joshua, what God had said to David, what, what he's saying to us now through his word. How do you, how do you keep your conscience The conscience is kept well by repentance. Do you realize we're meant to repent always? Why? Because we're always sinning. The conscience is kept well by obedience to God's will. The Bible isn't just for those people, it's for you. It's for me. And the conscience is kept well by our preoccupation with his grace in Christ. 
So it would be perfectly fine and normal, guys, to answer when your wife says to you, hey, what are you thinking about? And you say, as all men do, nothing. Although it is possible for men to think of nothing. I need to tell you ladies that. That's not a contrived thing. But wouldn't it be a wonderful thing, guys, if, if our conscience would testify as we said to her, I was just thinking about our Lord. He loves us. He loves us so. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my strength and my Redeemer. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much for your love. We thank you that your love is not general, it's not generic, it's so personal. And Lord, by your word, you've made that so plain. Through the work of your son, you've made it so personal. Jesus, you are our rock and our redeemer. I pray, Lord, that you would draw your people to yourself. And I pray, Lord, that more and more, this beautiful song of yours through David would be our song. Lord, that we couldn't help but look at your creation and have our thoughts go to you. That we, that we couldn't help but look at your word and not understand it is true for all people, but that it's true for us and we're meant to live by it. And Lord, that our conscience might be well maintained as we are warned and as we're rewarded by your truth as we walk with you. Lord, we want that to be our testimony as a people. We want that to be our witness to our community that you might be glorified. And so we ask you this for Jesus' sake. Amen.